Season 3, Episode 17, Sedition VIPs with Jewels. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the attempted coup that culminated in an attack on our nation's capital on January 6, 2021. I'm Scott Kuhn. Very pleased to say that this episode will be another interview with a member of the sedition hunting community, a person who I will call Jules, but who goes by the handle uh, Beto Angel Mamas on Twitter, although she also uses the handle Supermax number four seditionist. But before we get to that, let's go over the numbers, sourced as always from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 988 individuals charged, an increase of six since the last tally. There have been a total of 420 indictments, no change there. Six deceased, no change there. Two dismissals, no change there either. One acquittal, same. 634 convictions, an increase of 13 since the last tally. And 433 sentencings, an increase of six since the last tally. Now, rather than doing a defendant profile this episode, I'd like to take a moment to reflect on where we are overall. Uh, Probably about a year ago, I realized, looking at the various court dates, we would reach a point where the serious felony convictions would really start rolling in. We are now at that point. As a matter of fact, we are entering the sentencing phase for many of these serious AFO cases and other felony counts. So trials are concluding. Many defendants are also pleading ahead of their trial dates. I haven't done the numbers, but... um, Overall, in the federal system, you know, like 90 plus percent of people wind up pleading. Uh, The percentage here, I believe, for felony cases, especially AFO cases, appears to be much higher. As I say, the percentage, the proportion of these defendants choosing to go to trial. So that's one of the reasons why this is taking longer, just because of docket space on the DCD, the DC District Court, and just... Uh, the fact that, you know, it takes a long time to do a jury trial, and especially when you've got so many jury trials coming up. Now, many of the parading defendants, you know, have been dealt with by now, even though they're still picking them up. Um, but they're mainly taking pleas. So charges minus convictions right now, we have 354 defendants who are somewhere in the pretrial pipeline. And many of these are felony defendants. I believe it's a far higher proportion than was the case in the early days of the January 6th story. And a higher proportion of recent recent convictions and sentencings have also been for felony defendants than was the case a year ago. And uh, some of these defendants are cases that I've mentioned on the podcast. So I thought it would be an opportune time to go through some of the recent sentencings, just some of the people that we've... uh, that have been sentenced and convicted since March, since March, rather just sentenced, right? So it's convicted earlier, but sentenced since March. So we'll begin with John Wright, 55 of Canton, Ohio, who was sentenced to 49 months for the 1512 count of obstruction of an official proceeding. Now that's a long time, but it's still a better deal than he would have gotten had he gone to trial. So this is a defendant who decided to plead. He was originally charged with nine counts, including not only the obstruction charge, but also an act of physical violence on capital grounds and making false statements to a federal agent. 
Wright was one of many of the defendants who also made comments on social media that don't seem particularly helpful to his case. Uh, he said things such as, quote, uh, set on nice bench in Rotunda and had a smoke. Quote, yesterday was a practice run. And, quote, I think we need to make home visits. So 49 months for Mr. Wright. Dan Agvet, who I know we've mentioned on the show, Oakland, Maryland, uh, hashtag sedition is tiring. Uh, obviously a defendant I've talked about before, one of many felony defendants who decided, no, I don't want to take a plea deal and plead guilty to just one felony charge. I want to go to trial and face all the counts levied against me and let the time just stack up. So in his case, he was facing a total of nine counts. And he was convicted of four counts at his bench trial before Judge Cooper in January. Egvet, a large, sweaty man who flopped on the ground during his multiple physical altercations with law enforcement in the Hall of Commons, was sentenced, sorry, Hall of Columns. Uh, he was sentenced to 42 months of incarceration, three years probation, and $2,000 restitution. Larry Brock, age 53, of Grapevine, Texas. Hashtag Larry Brock, yet another defendant who decided, hey, I'm facing multiple felony counts. The smart move is to go to trial. Well, it didn't work out for Mr. Brock. I mentioned Brock in a very early episode of the podcast because he was a very early defendant who to be identified and arrested. So it's a mark of just how long it takes to move through the, the process in court that he's only now just being sentenced. Now, Brock's a lieutenant colonel in the uh, U.S. Air Force Reserve, and he's also the highest-ranking military officer to be convicted to date in the January 6th attack. Brock faced six counts. Um, his main mistake, of course, was making his way into the Senate chamber because, of course, everyone who made their way into the Senate chamber also got the felony 1512 obstruction char charge. Now, it probably wasn't a great idea for a military officer such as Brock to be dressed in full military kit, including a plate carrier and a helmet. Um, well, he went to trial, was convicted, and found guilty of the felony 1512 obstruction count charge, as well as all five misdemeanor counts. So congratulations, Larry Brock. Really good decision-making there. He was sentenced to 24 months in prison, two years probation, 100 hours community service, and a $2,000 fine. Now, I'll be honest with you, that doesn't seem enough. I think it's an impediment to the good order and discipline of the U.S. military for a lieutenant colonel to get away with uh, two years, basically, for what he did, right? Going into Congress, impeding an official proceeding, indeed, you know, the, the fundamental, right, the most fundamental official proceeding in our democracy, the counting of the, the electoral votes for the presidency, two years, you know, we want to discourage people from doing this kind of behavior, you know, if they're in the military. Uh, you know, if he's going to wear a military uniform inside the Senate chamber, he should face military justice. So in my view, this is a rather short-sighted uh, miscarriage of justice. You know, if Brock had had remorse, he could have taken a plea. Uh, he didn't. Uh, Judge Cooper, an Obama appointee, I think didn't really factor in the safety of our democracy in terms of this sentence. However, as we'll see, there are going to be some more rewarding sentences coming up. Aiden Billiard, age 20, of Cary, North Carolina, who's the youngest defendant from my home state of North Carolina, hashtag Harvard Sweats. Uh, 
Uh, he decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to take the plea. Good for Aiden. He pleaded guilty to one count of AFO, having originally been charged with nine counts. He did the math. He did the smart thing. Uh, he sprayed officers with pepper spray and attacked a window with a baseball bat. A billiard had enlisted in the military in between the time of his offense and his arrest. Uh, nonetheless, sentenced to 40 months incarceration, three years probation, and $3,500 restitution. Now, in contrast to Judge Cooper uh, with what he did for Brock, the judge in Billiard's case was Judge Reggie Walton, and Judge Walton doesn't mess around, giving serious time to Aiden Billiard. Jeffrey Sills, hashtag emo Nazi, 31, of Mechanicsville, Maryland. He's on video attacking officers with a baton that he stole from a Metropolitan Police officer. Still, Sills is yet another genius defendant facing multiple felony counts who decided to go to trial. How do you think it worked out for him? Well, he faced multiple counts in a face with five other defendants stemming from the Lower West Terrace Tunnel attack, and he was convicted of four felony counts, including assault on a federal officer and the robbery count for stealing the baton he assaulted police with. Now, this took place in a bench trial before Judge Trevor McFadden, and I am not a fan of Judge McFadden, uh, he's issued some rulings I find extremely questionable. Nonetheless, when it comes to AFO defendants, he at least appears to be holding the line. He's sentenced Sills to 52 months, which is, a, you know, pretty, pretty good. That's warranted. Riley Williams, 23, of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Another defendant, of course, who's been featured on the podcast. She's a groiper. She's a fan of Nick Fuentes. She is someone who says she wants to be a trad wife, right? A traditional wife, basically pumping out white babies for the, what she sees as the coming race war. She's a big fan of the Roman salute. She's seen, you know, uh, doing the Nazi salute. Not a nice person. She's a fascist, full stop. She faced eight counts and, again, decided to go to trial instead of taking a plea. She's probably best known for possibly stealing a laptop from Nancy Pelosi's office, but she wasn't convicted of that. Uh, the government couldn't prove that count. Instead, she was convicted of six counts, including two felonies. On March 23rd, she was sentenced to three years in prison, three years probation, $2,000 restitution. I believe that may be the longest sentence to date for a female defendant. Lilith Sayer. Uh, a misdemeanor offendant who was featured on the podcast, age 31, of Portland, Oregon. Now, I had highlighted her case because there was something odd in her statement of facts. Sayer works in IT, apparently took great care in not having her phone turned on, and so she was hard for uh, the authorities to find, especially to verify her presence and location inside the Capitol. Um, and it, they actually, I mean, again... If you've been listening, you know, there was a comment in there that I found puzzling. Basically, the investigating officer saying they had had a very hard time tracking Sarah down as a result. Ultimately, Sarah was undone by having connected to Wi-Fi during her stay in D.C. She's also notable, of course, because she's a trans woman with blue hair. And you would think someone like that would be easy to track down. But no, uh, she was not easy to track down. Um, once again... More clever than many of her other uh, compatriots, she accepted a plea deal to one misdemeanor parading charge. And on April 4th, she was sentenced to three years probation, 
$200 of community service, and $500 restitution. Oddly enough, I, I don't think the financial penalty here is enough as she owns rental properties. Uh, this is someone who works in IT. Probably, actually, the career consequences for Sarah won't be too great. Um, you know, so, yeah, uh, you know, a, a good deal. But again, no, no charges of violence, so it's understandable. Shelly Stallings, a.k.a. Shelly Schwartz, 43, of Morganfield, Kentucky. Hashtag green plaid lady. Now, she wasn't featured on her po this podcast, but her husband was. Uh, she's unusual because she's a female defendant who faced an AFO charge. She's a sprayer. And, you know, again, you know, the vast majority of AFO defendants have been male. So Stallings and her husband, Peter Schwartz, were charged with two co-defendants in an 11-count indictment uh, for uh, assaults that occurred on the Lower West Tunnel Terrace. Um, sorry, Lower West Terrace uh, slash Tunnel. Now, Stallings took the plea and was sentenced to two years incarceration, three years probation, no financial restitution. Now, Peter Schwartz, her husband, and the two other co-defendants went to trial in December, and they were convicted. Schwartz has claimed that the government entrapped him. He's being held pending sentencing, which should be very soon. Um, can't find the date on that. Should have happened already, but um, he he'll be sentenced very soon. There's video of him. Again, you know, you, you got entrapped. You know, I don't know how they tricked you. Um, there's video of him assaulting multiple officers. So, you know, again, doesn't really hold up. Schwartz has a long criminal history, 16 prior convictions, and was found guilty at trial. So all these things add up. He went to trial. He got convicted. He's got a criminal history. So he actually might be in the running to unseat the eye gouger, Thomas Webster, as the defendant who gets the most time to date in the January 6th cases. So Shelley is going to be out, out of prison a long time before Peter. And finally, Josiah Kenyon, hashtag pinstripe boiler suit, 35 of Winnemucca, Nevada. A man who dressed as Jack Skellington from The Nightmare Before Christmas on January 6th. Now, Kenyon is one of the defendants I featured on the podcast as one of the men who despite having very modest means, nonetheless traveled a great distance to come to the Capitol com to commit acts of violence on January 6th. Now, Kenyon has been identified as a sovereign citizen, but recently claimed to be a communist, which I very much doubt. This may have been some kind of bizarre plea for leniency. You know, all these people think that everyone to the left of Mitt Romney are communists, right? So maybe he thinks that they're going to find him sympathetic because he's now somehow read the complete works of Marx and Lenin? I don't know. Very curious. You know, also, communists don't generally assault police on behalf of billionaires, right? So, you know, a very strange claim from Kenyon. He had faced nine counts, including AFO and AFO resulting in bodily in injury. Uh, there was a, a span of time around 5 p.m. on January 6th where he got a hold of what appeared to be a table leg and uh, was assaulting, at least, I believe, three different officers with the table leg, uh, one of whom actually had to go to the hospital. Um, Kenyon, unlike uh, the other AFO defendants I've been talking about here, other than um, Shelley Schwartz, decided to take the plea. This is someone who's been wrapped up in the system before, and he knows he's an inmate. He knows the drill. He took the plea. So he pleaded to two counts, the AFO charge and the AFO with bodily injury charge, and he has a criminal record. So he was sentenced earlier this week 
to 72 months in prison, 36 months of supervised release, and $43,135.25 in restitution for his role in breaking what appears to be an extremely expensive window. So this is someone who spent time working as a busker. Um, his child welfare services, CPS, makes welfare checks on his kids, living in a van, sorry, a, a camper, hauled by an old, I mean, just, you know, not someone who really has a lot of means. He's going to be paying this off for the rest of his life. Uh, they'll give him a job in prison. You work pennies for, you know, for pennies an hour, and uh, they can take the restitution out of that, and all of his future earnings, um, and, you know, until he finally pays it back. All right. So we will be seeing more of these familiar defendants, people we've talked about before, people sedition hunters, of course, will be familiar with, people who've been following this line of stories for weeks and months to come. We're going to see a lot more of these people uh, and a lot more serious felony cases, AFO and obstruction of an official proceeding uh, coming up for, at convictions and sentencings soon. Uh, Proud Boys case, of course, still ongoing. Uh, today, they are present. The defense is presenting their evidence. I believe um, Zach Real is taking the stand. Nordine, Biggs, and Terrio have decided they are not taking the stand. Smart for them. Uh, when the defendants do this, it, it never works out well for them. In any event, that's my wrap up of recent sentencings. I want to thank law enforcement for their work. I want to thank uh, the judges on the DCD. Uh, well, the ones who gave uh, righteous sentences in any event. And also, of course, uh, the many sedition hunters who have helped on these and many other cases. It's my sincere hope that there's going to be justice not only for the mob of Trumpist goons who assaulted law enforcement, the media, and democracy itself on January 6th, but also for the VIPs, organizers, and the inner circle of plotters who orchestrated the January 6th attack. All right, that's about as good of a segue as you are going to get from me at this point. Okay, I am here with Jules, a sedition hunter uh, who has specialized in sedition VIPs on January 6th. So welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. It's good to be on. It's great to talk to you. Um, what is a sedition VIP? Uh, well, I actually hit it pretty well. We consider sedition VIPs to be things like influencers, planners, political people. Uh, most of them were there present January 6th, either at the Ellipse and or at the, at the Capitol. Um, in my mind, I also include some of the, the next level up planners, uh, in that category because, you know, so many of the people that were there, um, like, you know, Ali and, and his crew really did have another layer, you know, up, up that were kind of pulling the puppet strings. So technically it's supposed to be the people that were there as far as planners and influencers and things. But in my mind, I also add the others. So is it is it just the people with the lanyards, the VIP passes, or generally speaking, the the people that um, anybody that was important enough to sit kind of up in the front section there that you or I might know via Twitter or the news or um, uh, possibly as a state representative, things like that. 
if they were if they're important enough to be kind of just in that front area um, or uh, were possibly a planner for the event. Right. Yes, so, for example, people who didn't go at all, like Roger Stone, um, but nonetheless, certainly a VIP, right? I mean, even though he wasn't there. Are you on? There we go. I'm sorry. Uh, must I must have had gone blank on my screen. Yes, Roger Stone's actually a really good example for that because his fingerprints are literally everywhere on January 6th. But he um, <laughs> was probably just smart enough to stay away from the Capitol. That's the way I interpret it as well. And of course, he's connected to Terrio. And interestingly, Enrique Terrio on trial right now, of course, also found a way to absent himself from D.C. for January 6th. Albeit, it's funny how you know, that happened. Yeah. You know, more drastic means that, than Stone did. He simply just uh, up and left. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's that's exactly right. But there well, are I mean, actually quite, quite a few of them that, that absconded kind of at the last minute. Yeah, Nick Fuentes, right? Yes, as far as making it actually in deeply into the restricted area yeah nick fuentes would also be a, a a good example of that and he goes he gives a little speech to his minions and he leaves <laughs> some of them leave and then some of them go on and right. take part in the attack right that's exactly right he was just right very kind of tippy toeing around the edge of where he was supposed to be able to be but then uh, didn't eventually end up joining the massive convergence of of the VIPs up at, especially on the east side later in the day at the Capitol. I mean they just literally were everywhere. You could throw a dead cat and hit someone that <laughs> was either a planner or an influencer pretty much by the afternoon that day. And so let's talk about that a little bit. Where where and when was that exactly? Uh, uh, between, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, between 1.30 and 2.30 is when a lot of them started to roll in. Um, Ali Alexander, Owen Schroyer, and Alex Jones left Freedom Plaza at about 1.35 that day. And then brought their crew with them, but a lot of the other influencers um, weren't quite as quick out of the ellipse and ended up kind of taking um, uh, a different route a, a half hour or so later in the day. Uh, there was a stack formation that left the ellipse with uh, Daniel Bostic, Michael Coudre, um, just an, and Megan Barth, just a number of them. And they, they went to the Capitol a little bit later in a stack formation with some Oath Keepers as bodyguards. Um, we also saw uh, Jason Jones, who is uh, an anti-abortion advocate with the CMP that also showed up after two. Um, gosh, who else? There's just so many of them. Um, there were also a lot of, of people that were up at the Capitol that didn't get reported yet or haven't been at least um, faced any consequences for, the, for being there. Like uh, DC Drano, Rogan O'Hanley was there. Um, uh, Jacob Wall was at the Capitol. Uh, Jack Posebeck at the Capitol. Um, he'd like to tell you it was in his capacity at OAN, but I would beg to differ. Um, 
But by by two thirty or three o'clock, especially after, even after the windows, the first breach of the windows, people were still trying to get there or or, or were there at the Capitol. Um, when it got really bad, the violence at the Capitol got really bad. A lot of them ended up going to their backup location, which was a rooftop at 101 Constitution Avenue that was pre-rented by InfoWars and Ali Akbar, Ali Alexander, excuse me. So it was their overview, their overwatch position for when the, the, the Capitol was occupied. But a lot of, the, a lot of them kind of fell back there. By, uh, by three o'clock, yeah, it's pretty crazy. They uh, the uh, that's one thing that hasn't really been addressed yet, and that is the pre-rental of that overview position. Um, if you look at, I know, I'm sure you're probably familiar with the 1776 returns plan that was, yeah. Uh, yeah. So if you look at that, if you ever look at the buildings that were supposed to be occupied. And then you look at the capital map, the places where the rallies were to be held and um, uh, where the overview or the overwatch position is. Oh, I'm sorry, excuse me, one more thing. The, the Scottish rally that never got off the ground, there was supposed to be a rally later in the day at the Supreme Court with, uh, and Trump was gonna speak, but then it didn't, it didn't happen because of the violence. Uh, the Scottish Rally was right smack in the middle of all the 1776 returns buildings. And yeah, uh, worked on maps, it, multiple maps, right? I think it was also on the, um, was it uh, Occupy the Capital one or the new Right. And then Occupy, yeah, Occupy DC was uh, yeah. something that Ali, Ali Alexander and Michael Coudre and their and their friends pushed for weeks ahead of time like it was a you know getting people primed for that idea and i'm sure it was just a coincidence that later they pre-rented the rooftop that gave them a direct line of sight over all of that over the scottish rally you're right and yeah. all the buildings that were to be occupied so um yeah it was amazing how that happened dumb luck i'm sure <clears throat> As far as like actual oh. arrestees, we've got uh, Brandon Straka and um, the the Cowboys. Yeah, the Cowboys for Trump. Owen Schroeder, Cowboys for Trump guy. Uh, but really, very not. There were so many of them there, and hardly any of them have faced any consequences for being being on restricted grounds. It's it's yeah, amazing. Coy Griffin, I was dropped, and it's curious to me Thank why. You. Why would they get charged and all these other people like Alex Jones and Ali Alexander? You know, that, I mean, it's, it's a, the right is a charge, right? Should be. Yeah. Especially yeah. when like with, with, the, with the case of Ali and Owen and uh, Alex Jones, they were warned by phone or text by, I know at least by Caroline Wren and possibly others while they were on the corner of their, the Freedom Plaza kind of held up, giving their speeches and getting people wound up uh, after they left the ellipse, but then they stopped for a bit at Freedom Plaza and did their thing. That's, you know, what they do. They were getting people all wound up, Ali, excuse me, Alex and Owen. While they were there, they got messages saying the Capitol had been breached, or at least the first boundaries had been breached. And that it and was yet, that 
and the, that violence is breaking out, and yet they continued to pump up the crowd and walk it to the Capitol. So do you yeah. think, like, for example, someone like Caroline Wren may have been unaware for the plans uh, to occupy the Capitol, and yet clearly, uh, if you just look at their behavior, right, you know, Ali Alexander and Alex Jones may have been, but didn't care, or are they just stupid? Uh, oh, I'm sure they knew, and I believe that they, they'd like to just pretend like it. You know, they were they 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 do the oh, we were there to try to calm things down. That's really the only reason we went, type of thing. But if you if you follow Alex Jones and Ali's uh, movements, once they get to the Capitol, they walk from the west side to the east side. And bringing people along, the, the Pied Piper thing, you know, come on now, we're going to the other side, we're going to the other side. Um, and it just so happened that at that time, there weren't very many people on the east side. There were, everybody was kind of stacked up on the west side. So first they bring him from Freedom Plaza, then they bring him to the Capitol, then they move him to the east side. And during that period of time, Ali was tweeting to his followers as well. You know, come down to the Capitol on the orders of SCOTUS. Um, he sent out a tweet while they were moving from Freedom Plaza to the Capitol uh, about, you know, come down to the, he, he called it the, uh, the cabinet, but what he was saying was come down to the Capitol, need to be on the East or the Senate side and not the other. But so using his Twitter account to direct movement of people. They never once went anywhere near Lot 8. Not one time. And there so, was a, um, yeah, Lot 8 was where they had, uh, where they had what, 50 people. It was supposed to be 50 people, the, the event there. Right. The the, that, that was their, their permit location. And uh, never once stepped foot on it. The, the uh, Capital Hunters Group has gone to painstaking lengths to do uh, video syncs on the movements of, uh, you know, first Alec Jones's group, but then also later the Daniel Bostic stack. And it's pretty interesting to see uh, the sync between uh, where they all were, what they were doing, who was with them. And, and uh, like I said, you can tell whether they say they're there to, to calm things down or not. And they're there for their rally they never went anywhere near that location. And on, on the private private messages that were later released, Ali was telling people to go to the SCOTUS rally. And the, the timing is interesting too, right? Because there's the window breach on the west side, and then the people on the east side are relatively unopposed, right? Yes, so at that point, they're, they're not, they're not the doors. Pretty much. Yeah, and then there were people there that were also insiders. Uh, there's a gal named uh, Pam Hemphill that, uh, from Idaho State, affiliated with uh, the uh, Amma Bundy's group, who was telling people, oh, just come on in. You know, there's boundaries here, but you can just come on. This is your house. This is what we did in Idaho in August of the year prior. You know, so she was, and others, there were not just her, but others were there, kind of trying to coax people in at first. And then there were people that were on the staircase, on the stairs up to the Capitol with Alex and Allie and Owen. Um, 
uh, Joey, oh gosh, I can't remember his last name right now. He just recently ran for um, the governor of Nevada. He's an ex-prize fighter, but he and his group, some of the people with them, were responsible for removing the barriers. And then asked Alex, you know, hey, Alex, come on up to the stairs kind of thing. So still uh, trying to incite, incite the people and, and get the movement of bodies through. Now, Pam Hemphill, is, uh, is she doing kind of like an apology tour or is she like uh, expressing regret and remorse now? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, she's really not, um, which is really unusual. I mean, she could have probably just faded into the background if she'd wanted to once her, her uh, sensing and, and time and, and uh, the jail were up and over. But she's been pretty active from what I can see on social media and in some of the Twitter live spaces and things like that. <clears throat> well, that was the thing. I, I, I actually, I was, I was on a space with her the other day, and she sounded contrite, like she's come to a point where she thinks Trump used them, et cetera, and so forth. So maybe so. I, if, if she has, maybe it's I, some time. I don't know. I haven't yeah, done a deep dive into her postings. Though. It's you know certainly possible. I just know that for a while, a good while after this all happened, she still was um, towing the party line. I guess. So. It's, it's, that position seems obvious to me, right? Right. Like how few of these people wind up ultimately realizing we were dupes, we were tools, and you know, basically, you know, flipping. And it just—it's one hundred percent avoidance of cognitive dissonance. It's pretty much that, that whole story. Pretty much, it's kind of sad. I don't know if it's just a matter of pride, or if. The, the being associated with that movement is lucrative enough from other people that are sending donations that it keeps them kind of in that space. It would be hard to know. But um, Pam Hempel is, is interesting because of her connection to people's rights and Emma Bundy. Uh, there was another man that was at the Capitol uh, that you can see in a video walking with Allie and Alex as they're moving uh, on their way from west to east, I believe it is. Um, he's a, a people's rights organizer or leader from the state of Montana that was with them. So, uh, and I, I do know that Amon Bundy, can, um, he, he encouraged his followers to go. Um, there were other leaders in the organization that encouraged those followers to go. But, uh, of course, Ammon was not there himself. And so with people's rights, is there a lot of overlap with, like, let's say the Oath Keepers as well? And Proud Boys. Yeah. The, the leader of the Florida State uh, People's Rights Organization, or at least up until this recently, this last year, I believe, is a man who is a member of the Proud Boys. Oh, yeah, and remember. that's one of the things that you've, you've documented, I think, is interesting, is not just January 6th, right, but also... The, the convergence, uh, basically the the history of the rightward drift or shift or push uh, in the Republican Party to eventually become a, a far right extremist party. Absolutely, and and it is uh, it has been a pretty interesting interesting uh, journey. That, that I'd say that the originally the first I mean you could go back to the eighties and nineties with talk radio, but it really kind of started to 
to move at a quicker pace in the early 2000s, especially once Barack Obama was uh, uh, won the election. And you started to see the Tea Party movement. And but prior to that, there uh, with Andrew Breibart and Steve Bannon when they were uh, Andrew Breibart was running Breibart.com. Uh, they spent a lot of time uh, developing right-wing bloggers to do what people on social media do now. You know, they, they had a whole posse of bloggers that used that space to push information, disinformation or misinformation and get people riled up. Um, and <laughs> uh, Ali uh, Alexander was one of Andrew Breibart's earliest protégés and uh, he took uh, Ali under his wing, and uh, they did the blo uh, Bloggers Bash that started, I think, in like 2009 or 2010. But he was funded by Breibart and the Mercers and a man named Foster Freeze, who was a Council for National Policy member, long-term CNP member. Uh, Freeze himself is kind of interesting because he was the uh, one of the original benefactors for uh, Ali, Ali Alexander for um, Blog Bash and then the National Bloggers Club. He funded uh, um, the Daily Caller, which launched, of course, Tucker Carlson and allowed Jeannie Thomas a space to write her things. Um, uh, who else did he do? He did... Uh, James O'Keefe, he funded Charlie Kirk. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a pretty significant list who have entered that space that were all funded by the same billionaire from Wyoming, Foster Freeze. And so it's something fair to say that the January sixth is a was a CMP Council for National Policy operational almost. Almost. Mm -hmm. Interesting because the CMP members have a lot of overlap with other organizations, and one is the one, of course, that Ginny Thomas is involved with, which is, or founded, excuse me, with Steve Bannon over lunch in 2012. Um, they used to call it Groundswell. Uh, I believe it's got a different name now, but uh, Groundswell came to be right at the same time that the Tea Party movement was hitting a crescendo. Um, they were, you know, they were described as saying they wanted to take a 30-front war to the to the uh, milk toast type GOP and the the Dems, and some of the very original Groundswell members would be, of course, Ginny and Bannon. But you're also looking at um, people like Ali Alexander, uh, who actually ran their listserv, their, their private communications, their groups. For 14 months, he was being paid through the Conservative Action Project, who probably was at that time, a, a, I think they call him a monetary sponsor, a fiscal sponsor for groups if they're not a, a 501c3 or 501c4 themselves. But you can see it in, the, uh, in their their history, the records that he was paid through his company at that time, which was Vice and Victory, $45,000 over a 14 month period of time to run their listserv and help them with some of the technical aspects of the group. I don't know why he was, I don't know if he was asked to leave or if he left under his own volition. 
But that was about the time that Allie changed from Akbar to Alexander and moved to Louisiana and entered kind of the politics down in that area, Louisiana, Alabama, Florida, things like that. It'd be interesting to see who was uh, funding him. I, I believe I heard an interview or, or seen some reporting on him that that was also basically he was hired to do that, right? So, yes. Um, you know, yeah. I think, yeah. He, he I did was, a number of GOP campaigns, and some of them are higher uh, profile than others. He was involved in a, a, a couple of efforts to unseat a woman named uh, Landry uh, that was a senator in Louisiana at the time, which is where Ali Alexander and uh, James O'Keefe crossed paths in the, in, in the beginning, uh, back, <laughs> back when O'Keefe got arrested for impersonating, I believe they impersonated telephone security people or something to get into her campaign headquarters and bug the phones. Yep. Yeah, so, but that's about the time that those two connected between, I'd say, 2010 and 2012, 14. He was involved in boosting Ted Cruz's uh, Senate run. Um, he was in, he was hired to help Daniel Bostick's father with a, a run for uh, Congress. So it's just kind of interesting. Um, when he was working, there was an organization similar to the CNP, but geared on a regional basis for uh, Republicans at the time down in the Louisiana, the, South, the Sun Belt area um, in 2014. And that's when he actually met uh, Trump the first time, as well as uh, he hit, uh, Steve Bannon was there. He had invited them to speak to this conference that he was doing co uh, communications for, I believe, at the time. So it's interesting because he knows everybody. You know, sometimes people, I hear people a lot say, how on earth could he have pulled this off? You know, he's just a right-wing guy that, you know, talks on Twitter or whatever, but that's not true. He's got a he must have, at this point in his career, a ginormous Rolodex, so to speak, because he's interacted with so many people on the right wing over a career that goes back to 2008 or seven. And so I, one of the things that's interesting is that there's, it looks like it's a, you know, I call it like a crowdsourced insurrection, right? I think there are a lot of people yeah. who specialize and I mean, I'm not alone that, right? I think, you know, uh, but there, there are I a would, lot of people. That would be a good way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are a lot of people who specialize in like one person will say, Mike Flynn was behind everything. The entire thing was a psyop and QAnon. And, or they'll, they'll right. focus on this one simple figure and decide, no, this person's the linchpin. But no. they don't understand it's like it's, it is the network, the network that's There's developed. A bunch of linchpins, and they all connect. I mean, it's the typical seven degrees of Kevin Bacon kind of thing. It's pretty crazy. But no, I I think the way that you're looking at it is absolutely right. There were organizations and uh, influencers and politicians from all across the spectrum from different organizations that, you know, if you put it out on paper, it must be like an Al-Qaeda operation where You've got different cells and then people that connect those cells that connect to each other. And they're all walking free. And they're all the walking part. free. That's right. And Yay. 
still running their seat packs and uh, you know the the various. I mean, and for example, like the the new apostolic reformation, right? It's like that's yes. fun, you know. And um, yes, yeah, there's been some great work that being done. That was Jenny Cohn, you know. And then there's people focusing on Rodney Stone. Yeah. Sorry, so Jenny does amazing work. I agree, yeah. but it's so. like you know you can. Like I, I had an earlier episode where I, I drilled in on Clay Clark and his crazy whiteboard. Oh my um, gosh! Yes. But there, there's, there's just so many. It's like every single part, you know. As you mentioned, the the far right uh, anti-abortion movement. Yes, um, uh, and uh, Jason Jones uh, being there, he was at the, on the Capitol on restricted grounds, and he's a a, a, a member of the Council of National Policy as well. Member, I think he was a believe also. Catholics for Trump member, possibly uh, like Ed Martin was also Catholics for Trump. So, right. so Phil Schlafly, uh, Eagle Forum. Um, yes. You know, all, of them, all of them. Deeply involved. And it, it, it is the establishment, right? And so the media kind of does this narrative where, you know, it's like, oh, there's this new populist element. And it's like, if you look at the organizational structure, this has become the Republican establishment. The Republican establishment are these groups. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's absolutely correct. And it's been a, it's it's kind of been a long. I like to call it the long con, but you know, to them, I'm sure that's what they truly believe. But we, for, to, going back to Ginny Thomas and Groundswell, for example, um, the organizations that she worked with, like. Uh, the True the Vote Lady, Catherine Engelbrat and uh, Russell Ramslin, who founded uh, Allied Security Organiz uh, Group, was a, a founding member of Groundswell, um, besides Ali Akbar. I mean, there's just a whole list of them, of organizations that we'd all we'd all know and see and get the Shafley Group, um, a gal, you know, Barbara Ladine, who has at the Capitol Hill for senators and, and things like that. Um, uh, Tom Fitton, uh, who J at Judicial Watch is a founding member of Groundswell. He still is. They, it's still an active group. They meet weekly and they have a tremendous amount of, of uh, flex, I guess, across, across all these groups. And we're back with Jules. Yes, we certainly are. So we, we cut out connectivity issues. Uh, it's 21st century, of course, on the other hand, you know, wouldn't be possible uh, 30 years ago. All right. So, and now I feel bad. I was just going to make a joke about all these things are supposed to make our life easier. But <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I've we've had podcasts where, where this has gone horribly wrong. And it's, I've had to do like, 62 minute segment. So this is going much better than, than it has uh, at some point in the past. So I oh, believe you're talking about the CNP uh, when we got interrupted. Yes. Uh, and honestly, this, the conservative action, excuse me, the CNP, the Council of National Policy, uh, the grounds whole group I was talking about. And then there's a third one, kind of a, uh, it's called, they call it the Conservative Action Project, which is supposed to be the political arm of the CNP, are basically all the same people for the most part. And they have been for a really long time. But when you look at who is CNP or Groundswell and who isn't, um, 
uh, on November 4th, Ali, Ali Alexander sent out a tweet talking about how he wasn't sure if he wanted to do Stops to Steal, even though he'd spent months promoting it. And he didn't think he could. He didn't think he could wrap it up enough for, to make it a, a, a nationwide effort. Uh, a couple hours later, he came out with another tweet that said, "All right, this is what we're going to do. These are the people I would trust to help me run it." And everybody on the list is CMP, pretty much. Um, Charlie Kirk, uh, Jenny Beth Martin, Ed Martin, Tom Fitton, the Kramers, all the people that he said that he could trust enough to help him take this, the thing that they tried to do in 2018 um, down in Florida as a nationwide effort. We're also CNP uh, members. Uh, He's been a member on and off for years as well in the CNP. Um, So it makes sense to me that that's, you know, there's obviously a thing here. Um, that this is that, that kind of underlying effort from people uh, who've been affiliated with the same organizations for you know some 10 20 years or more but yes they're very much cmp and a lot of them are also the groundswell group which is kind of a little more in your face than the cnp might be and then the thing about the conservative action project if you were to go look them up on the internet um they, they, they write letters. They put these letters out into the public arena. Um, uh, conservatives, uh, yada, 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 oppose this or we support that. Um, they, they, a lot of times they make recommendations on personnel, like when Trump was in the office, personnel they supported or who they didn't support now that Biden's in office, um, things like that. But interestingly enough, they sent two letters out into the public arena during the month of December of 2020 discussing uh, basically the faux electors plan earlier in the month, which was, I think, December 10th, perhaps. And then later in the month, they sent out another kind of discussing how this really wasn't going to be settled until January 6th and encouraging people, the legislators and such, to, to not allow uh, Biden's victory to be, to be uh, certified. Uh, but it's pretty crazy, some of the things. I mean, I've, I, I've, I've wasted, like, a lot of hours sometimes going back through some of these crazy letters that are thrown out over the course of time. Um, and... And I, I honestly came to believe that they were using the letters to directly communicate to somebody within the, the Trump organization or the White House about who he should be putting in positions and things of that nature, policy and personnel, because they're, they're very specific. One, like, for example, one was they really wanted Ken Cuccinelli in at uh, – Department of Homeland Security, full-time, who uh, happens to be, by the way, CNP, Ken Cuccinelli. He used to be the attorney general for the state of Virginia, then went to work for Trump in a number of positions and ended at DHS uh, at the end of Trump's run. But um, it was, I mean, there's a, a pretty high amount of those recommendations ended up being people that were placed in the positions. 
So like so, Chad Wolf, Cash Patel, are they? Uh, I I wish I, I actually I don't think either of those are on there, and I do have them all saved somewhere on my on my computer. I should probably just make a a, a thread of them. Actually, uh, some of the letters are pretty wild, but uh, they definitely were not uh, not shy about making their views known. Uh, well, like for example, right after COVID start hitting the U.S. hard, uh, they formed uh, another organization called the Coalition to Save America, I believe is what it was called at the time, where they brought out all the frontline doctors trying to back Trump up for getting the country, the economy back open. Um, and one of them, uh, Simone Gold, for example, ended up being, uh, she actually did get arrested in the Capitol. I forgot about Simone Gold. We were talking about that earlier. And John but, Strand. Uh, and John Strand, but and um, yeah, Simone Gold was front and center in the in the um, the letters that they were releasing to the public, trying to get support for reopening the economy. As you know, an expert because she thinks she was an ER doctor in, at the time in LA, perhaps. But um, it's just it's there everywhere you look. I mean, they're everywhere. And of course, there's another direct line to the militias there as well. Richard Mack, member of the Oath Keepers, member of the Oath Keepers Board, and of course also uh, America's Frontline Doctors Board as well. Right. Do you know who else did uh, America's Frontline Doctors? Michael Coudre. <laughs> it's a he small was, world, isn't it? Right. Michael Coudre helped them when they were trying to get uh, the hydro uh, hydrochloroquine as the as the uh, answer to COVID, he was probably the one number one person putting out medical misinformation about COVID at the time. And, and later found out it was because he was actually doing comms for frontline doctors. So and I don't I, I don't know if you know much about him. He's really an interesting person. Um, I don't know, if we know much about his history because he was also kind of a linchpin. Whereas he started originally as a rapper wannabe. I don't know if you know anything about that part of his history, but nope. he was he went he in the early two thousands twenty ten and twenty twelve. He evidently at least did a number of tour dates as a member of a kind of a boy white white boy band rapper takeoff thing and it didn't quite work out for him from <laughs> what I understand but his name was Mike Tokes at the time. He went by Mike Tokes. Um so if you were to look him up on Twitter, I don't know if his account would be active now or not, but Mike Tokes went on to join that space kind of like Richard Mack where he he also knew a number of Oath Keepers. He was integral to the Battle of Berkeley. You know, if you're familiar with all the Battle mm -hmm. of Berkeley or Free Speech, but he was right smack in the middle of that uh, with uh, Baked Alaska was one of his real good buddies at the time. But he also hanged out with Richard Spencer and a bunch of whole other bunch of neo-Nazis and uh, extremists while he was in that space between He's, the reason he's interesting to me is because there's been so many versions of him. And he started as a musician, and then he went in, and he went through this space where he was hanging out with the neo-Nazis. 
And then uh, he went dark on Twitter and came back as Michael Coudre again. And by then he was saying he was an entrepreneur who'd made all this money, uh, which was interesting because he had uh, somewhere in between there gotten arrested in Las Vegas for bouncing pet checks to gamble. Um, but he's now, you know, so he went into the space of being in the political arena doing social media. He's a social media entrepreneur doing social media for famous people and politicians and such. And that was supposedly how he made a bunch of money. And I don't know. Was he also uh, yet another export talent person? Oh, uh, yes. He he wasn't export talent, but he was in the same lane. There's a, there are so many people that are on the, uh, the right wing influencer side of the spectrum that came from failed music careers or they were models, they're musicians, some were with Explore Talent, some not. Like for example, Jack Posebeck did a he did a Jackie Chan movie in two thousand eight. Yep. Be- yep. Yeah, and Scott Pressler and yep. uh, Oh God, there's they're just a huge list of them. The gal that was with Owen Stroyer when he did the arson fire behind the Willard on January 5th in honor of uh, Enrique Tario. They did a, a, they lit a Black Lives Matter flag on fire behind the Willard that night after the big to-do at Freedom Plaza. And the D.C. police had to be called out. But the gal that was with him is Explore Talent. I can't remember her name. She's with... um, Oh gosh, I'm sorry. I, I can't bring it to mind right now, but there are I think too it's many. on my timeline. Too, <laughs> too many. So you'd, at some point in time, you have to kind of wonder who is finding these people and grooming these people and uh, promoting them enough to get started in this information space. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it's been and a. What- it's an interesting question. Also, the uh, the arson fire. Now, did they buy the flag? This wasn't one where they, they stole it off a black church, right? No, they did steal it off a black church this time. But boy, how did they make a big to-do about it. Baked um, uh, uh, Alaska streamed it. And it was uh, Owen and his buddy, Tyler... Taylor, Taylor. I can't think of his last name. He's from Utah. He's a... Uh, um, extremist from utah uh and this gal it was tara tara and tyler taylor sorry were with him but they uh, uh, owen kind of emceed it he was there and he made a big thing about it and they uh, they streamed it but there's you just have to know it was kind of like a well we tried to go back to the blm plaza and stir shit up and that didn't happen so what else can we do and this is what they chose and it was streamed by baked alaska so and that, oh, go ahead. kind of fascinating to me is like the, the connection to racial politics. Uh, as a Southerner, of course, you know, I, I'm imminently aware of that element. And it, it's amazing to me how many people in the West uh, also oh, yeah. end up having these sort of white supremacist. Uh, Absolutely. It's, it's in the DNA in a lot of the Mountain West states. Um you know, I also throw Washington State and, and, and Eastern Oregon into that mix. But, it, you know, you look at Idaho, uh, Montana, Wyoming, Utah, 
that kind of thing, that whole strip all the way down to Arizona, Nevada, especially, of course, with the, the Bundy family. And they are a huge, another huge spoke, if you look at it that way, I mean, that they're connected to everyone. I mean, Stuart Rose made his bones with the Oath Keepers at the Bundy standoff in Nevada. Um, Paul Gosar was there. Richard Mack was there. Uh, Kelly Ward was there. I mean, they just whole cast of characters from, you know, especially Arizona, but uh, really all throughout the West. But that's kind of really where the Oath, Keeper, Oath Keepers came to be between that. And there was a standoff at a uh, mine in Sugar Hill Mine in Montana around yep. that time. And then a little bit later, of course, the, the Oregon, where the, they occupied the federal building in Oregon type of thing. But the, uh, the, the family is legend here, you know, here out, out west, if I'm out west, but every, you know, they, they're held in, up and revered as the, the people that gave the federal government the finger a bunch of times. <laughs> and never really paid any price for it. Um, but yeah, no, that's remarkable. It, the failure to really adequately prosecute those uh, events, you know, gave in some sense to, to January 6th, which was our, our own yeah. coordinated Reichstag fire. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually agree wholeheartedly with that because so many, so many different strains of extremism came from that. Those those years that the years between the the Nevada standoff and uh, the one in Oregon and then shortly thereafter, but I mean even Roger Stone um, is tight with the Bundy family, um, and then like I said, there the gentleman Joseph O'Shaughnessy is uh, Papa Bundy's favorite bodyguard, and Roger Stone's favorite bodyguard. He was uh, there's a picture that went out on Instagram. Um, right after Roger got pardoned, and he's there with Ali Alexander in his home in Florida. Uh, I think it was either right before or right after Stone met with uh, Trump at the uh, golf course to, to thank him, supposedly just to thank him for being pardoned. But Ali was there, I believe it was the day before, but Joseph O'Shaughnessy was the one that took the picture and put it on the Internet. Um, he's done that in a number of interesting times and locations. He was uh, at the um, Willard on the, I believe it was the 11th or the 12th of December. There were a number of influencers and organizers and uh, people from the Pastors for Trump and the whole shebang met for a meeting with Roger Stone and uh, uh, Reverend Gibson and Matt Couch was there. I'm assuming it was a planning meeting of some kind. I've never really seen anything specific written about it, but I've seen lots of pictures and it looks like it, it was a pretty good gathering of people. Which, what was the date on this? Uh, it was December 11th or 12th. Actually, so I'm sorry, it was just it must have been 11th because um, Roger Stone ended up going back down to Florida, I believe, for the 12th. But Joseph O'Shaughnessy was there uh, um, and also posted pictures of um, Alex Jones and Roger Stone having brunch that weekend. He yep. did the security at the, um, 
like the Moms for Trump Christmas thing or whatever it was they did, Cindy and Chafian and Kim Fletcher and, and that crew. Um, but, so he was everywhere that weekend. But O'Shaughnessy was at Bundy Ranch in November in uh, Nevada, and he was Papa Bundy's made guy. So, and so that of course is a week to the day before you have Sidney Powell and um, Patrick Byrne and uh, <laughs> the and, Flynn. and Mike Flynn all going in for for and they're led in by Garrett Ziegler, uh, right. who worked for for Navarro. Um, are you aware of any connections between uh, Council for National Policy and Peter Navarro? You know, uh, not off the top of my head, but it surely wouldn't surprise me. Right. Not uh, not at all. Because, um, I mean, he I, basically, in the White House, is the central figure. Yeah, um, he was uh, right in, the, uh, right in the, uh, the, the, the thick of things, definitely, with the, the sedition wing of the White House staff by that time. Absolutely. Yeah. He and, you know, his little plan, the, what do they call it, the Green Bay Sweep? Yep. <laughs> Yeah, and the, the Navarro report. Yes, Navarro report. And there were so many reports at the time, and there was also an awful lot of sedition letters and memos, and then uh, letters from, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but letters from members of state legislatures yep. uh, in various states uh, that were on or before January 5th being sent back to give to Mike Pence by Mark Fitchum. Fincham. Uh, and a was... number of them are actually also contacting Trump directly. I just read Molly Michaels' transcript, and uh, she's fielding uh, basically, you know, she's not cooperative, but um, probably fair to say, too many to remember. I mean, I actually believe her when it comes to the whole, I don't recall on this one. Uh, they're even, they're calling up the White House switchboard, uh, leaving messages and talking to Trump. Right. This is what this is what we think you need to do. It was coming yeah. from everywhere. It seems like, honestly, heck, even looking at the Meadows text. There's so many text messages that came through Meadows. Well, here's a good example. I just had the paper here. Uh, he got a he got a text message from Mike Lee on November seventh. And to sidebar, Mike Lee was one of Ginny Thomas's first candidates to promote in her Tea Party organization when she was doing Liberty Central. So that's a side note. But Mike Lee texted Meadows on the 7th of November, and he said, sent him this note. It's, it's long, but it's, we, the undersigned, offer unequivocal support for you to exhaust every legal constitutional remedy for your at your disposal and it goes on but it's signed by Andy Biggs Adam Brandon who's for, with Freedom Works but also is CNP uh, Bill Walton CNP uh, Marjorie uh, I can't pronounce her last name but she's with the Susan B Anthony organization so anti-abortion but and CNP Dan McIntosh, who is Club for Growth, and CMP, Matt Slap, um, another Bozell, and Tom Fitton sent this, you know, forwarded this message to Meadows from these people on the 7th. And they're almost all CMP. Oh, Jenny Beth Martha Martin was in there too. So 
Um, yeah, I've and, seen that letter, and uh, uh, with connection to the Bozells, that's that's the senior and uh, not Elbrit Jr. is the one who's actually in the Senate chamber. Uh, but the other one is actually president of one of MRC's organizations, and he's the one who who winds up signing uh, that letter. Uh, interesting side note: I've been following the Elbrint Bozell the fourth case, and there's some interesting things going on. It looks like, you know, they, they've they've dragged it out. They've they've done everything they can to delay, delay, delay. Um, but it looks like a plea agreement is in the works. Uh, coming up later this month or or next month, um, there's been some action on on his docket, and that's right what I'm anxiously awaiting. Yeah, I think it's only reasonable if you're gonna if you're gonna do the crime and all that, right? So you're gonna have to he's gonna have to man up, and even if it's only thirty days, he whatever it is they give him, he needs to. Well, doesn't no, matter who did the Senate chamber, right? So everyone who went into yeah. the Senate chamber automatically gets a fifteen twelve obstruction charge, and that's a felony Perfect. punishable yeah, life for twenty years. Fine by me, but yeah, yeah I, the, after, after Daddy's pulled every string that he can to try to get him out of that situation, I there's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, and that's so. the, one of the most direct links between someone actually inside the Capitol and uh, the far right Republican establishment. Right. Uh, you know, I mean that's <laughs> that's Bill Buckley's nephew, right? So. Yeah, it surely is. It's crazy. Uh, but it, it, the thing that always amazes me about this stuff is that they're all so blase about it. Do you know what I mean? Like they don't even try to be sneaky. A lot of this stuff, a lot of this. I like to I refer to this whole crew of people as basically a viper's den, an incestuous den of vipers. Because they're all involved in all the organizations and all the coalitions and all the this and that and they don't they don't make any bones about the fact that they know they're probably doing something that's not right and they don't care because they i don't know if it's just right personal righteous indignation or what it is that makes people do the things that they do but it's it's mind-boggling to me well it's that, that attitude expressed by roger stone right you know fuck you we're going to go in front of judges we appointed and they're going right. to rule the way we, we tell them to. Whether you like and, it or not, yeah. suck it. Yeah, pretty much. But, it, but it's so prevalent everywhere. Everything. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, they, they actually, I mean, they have, there's this vested belief that money, power, and privilege insulate you. And so far, they've been proved right. I mean, the Sedition VIPs, the central organizers, um, they haven't been arrested. And you can no. draw the links there between when Eastman draws up his fake elector plan and then ultimately this plan to storm the Capitol, I believe, um, you know, he's tied into that as well because he is a belief that yep. if they go to 1201, if they can just make it one second into January 7th, it throws everything into the contingent election process in the sure. House and Republicans well, will win. Do you, I don't know if you know this or not, but Earlier, even in, earlier in December and late November, um, Ali Alexander was doing interviews and speeches talking about the whole we're going to take it to the House thing. Yep. He also tweeted about it as early as November 8th. The other thing that was interesting, and I just found this recently, um, Ivan Raiklin, a lot of people you know, say he was the Pence card guy and that it, his stuff came out 
in mid to late December, but he did an InfoWars segment on the 11th of November and was int introduced as the constitutional lawyer that was uh, sure. working with Trump organization on this thing where he went through the whole, you know, can't reach 270, here are the states, this and that, signal the house, blah, blah, blah. So I think it maybe possibly began sooner. I don't know if Eastman was involved prior to that, but to see him doing that on the 11th, 11th of November, that's like three to four weeks earlier yep. than was, I think, previously thought or known, possibly. Um, I, I can't figure out how he's not been arrested yet. It's the, I have a whole list of people like that. They're like, how have they not been arrested yet? Do well, you know? I mean, that's the thing. I, I don't know if it was like blue or not. You know, I have this basic idea. It's like, they're all going to swoop in and get them all. But I, 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 uh, no, I I'm not like that. Of that notion. Uh, I, but it I, is I, a giant, seditious conspiracy. Yeah, ultimately. absolutely. Yeah. Whether it was quiet or not, they, yeah, I, I would agree. I have, there's probably a handful, I'd say probably 10 people that I have a list of in my brain. It's like, how the heck has that person not been picked up yet? So, Cindy Chapian's one. Yeah. I mean, she blew, she blew off her subpoena and everything, but she's, I mean, taint deep. I don't know a better way to describe it in so much stuff. Even uh, um, on the 4th of November, her sending out the the, uh, I think it was on fa the Facebook Facebook Stop the Steel group saying that she needed people that were willing to support a fire mission, which is basically a military term for we need people to come in here and kill people or whatever we need. You know, how does that go? And she's still doing the same thing. She's still out there. She's organizing and doing rallies and doing. She's involved in the Moms for America effort to whitewash. Uh, the history of racism and everything else that's going on, burning books or banning books. She's leading the charge on that now. It's crazy. Revisionist history. And it, it, yeah, with Reichland, I know, I, I think that some people have said that, well, he really played up his role, um, that he's self-aggrandizing. Um, but again, you know, it's they all are. Yeah, maybe. I know he was an insider on the Capitol yeah. ground. And I know after the Flynn organization tried to wash her hands of him, even just recently, there are pictures again of him with with Mike Flynn. Well, he's, he's, my, he's my inside favorite to, to be identified as a pipe bomber, right? I mean, I know everyone's right. uh, looking at the Marjorie Taylor Greene, but he's an odd-shaped little man. Right, um, he is that. He is that indeed. It's kind of sad. I have gone through some of his stuff. Kind of creeped on his social media and his history prior to that. And I don't think he was always that way. I don't know where that came. And we're back with Jules, where we were just talking before we were rudely interrupted by the gods of the internet. Uh, about <laughs> and she was describing how she would been had been lurking on his page and uh, seeming to, to note some sort of transformation. He wasn't always a gnome. Best that I could tell because he actually ran for public office, I believe it was in 2019, possibly 2020, early 2020. 
um, for uh, senator or congressman in Virginia where I lives, and went on a run for uh, you know raising money for people that had cancer. I think it was something like that. Um, it didn't seem to be the same person. Um, I later found out that uh, he had lost a son in combat at some time in the last few years. And I, I don't know if that was it, perhaps, but somewhere along the line over the last few years, you know, prior to 2020 anyways, there seemed to be change and became more radical on some of his views. It's kind of was, I think, where I was headed with that. Just sad. I mean... You know, I've, I've lost a child and I understand what that can do to somebody. And maybe it's why I'm trying to kind of allow them some grace. Understood. Uh, yeah. And, the, um, you know, the person like Ranklin is Christina Bob to me. You know, she's ex-military. She was a JAG in the Marine Corps. Went to work for Department of Home Security as Chad Wolf's right-hand gal. Um for I, I'm not quite sure how long, but a, a period of time under the Trump administration, and then just left and went to OAN for some reason, right? Yeah, like, okay, why? What's up with that? But Christina Bob was very involved in some of the things that happened leading up to the the insurrection, as far as being later identified as somebody who wrote some of the uh, me the memos or executive orders to seize the voting machines. You know, they wanted to first use DOD. I think she came back later and changed it to DHS, Department of Home Security and local sheriffs. Um, and then, you know, later on you find out she's now working for Trump and was right smack in the middle of his classified documents thing. And also at the Willard as, as well? And she was indeed at the Willard with John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani and friends um, for days ahead of the, you know, out of their war room there, uh, basically, while she was also supposed to be an OAN uh, media personality. So, and the other thing, the, the thing that's really interesting about OAN is that they almost seemed like they had a tip about what might be going down at the Capitol when we talked about the Occupy the Capitol or 1776 before 1776 returns, because they had, uh, I think it was uh, Chanel Ryan was inside the Russell Senate building. It was completely empty. She was there with a full media crew ahead of any violence and, mm. post, and posted a tweet, something about this being the quiet before a long storm at two o'clock on January 6th. Many of the aspects of the 1776 return, like what actually happened doesn't resemble that, but yet. But that maybe, was, they were, they were aspiring to that. Yeah, you know, and maybe they, they, they got in a copy. Yeah, I, yeah, maybe. Um, and very similar, like I said earlier, I think to about the Occupy DC thing that um, Michael Kudre and Ali Akbar had been pushing and, and doing a test run on. They did a test run on the whole Occupy uh, concept in Georgia on November 18th. So and everybody. Ali Alexander and. Uh, uh, Tario, Tario was there. Uh, Alex Jones was there. Owen Schreier was there. Um, like you said, Fuentes. Also, Stuart Rhodes was there. 
and Yoda from One AP was there. Very All much that. the same group of people. Yeah. Right. And so we're going to just go invade the Georgia Gold, Gold Dome. And that's what they did. So it seems that's one of the things I kind of expected from the, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys seditious conspiracy cases is that they're conspiring with these people. And mm -hmm. so you can expand that. Right. Now, and Bert convictions. Um, Bertino you know, Bert was there also. Who was that? Bertino was there also that right. day. Yeah, so. Yeah, a lot seems of like, boys, right? Yeah, it just seems like it might be significant, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there so. are other state capitals, right? Michigan. Yeah, um, Michigan, Idaho. Uh, they attempted something kind of kind like that in Oregon, a little different, but same type of thing. Same concept. We're just going to bust our way in because you, you told us we can't. So it's kind of funny uh, that way. Um so much stuff even happened before the election besides just the capital thing. I mean, looking back, I look back now and think they had all these people and all these organizations in power, the Vipers Den, so to speak, had to have known that Trump was going to lose because there was a, even before COVID, a concerted effort to find ways to make it easier for him to win. Like the RNC suspended all of the uh, any you know any chance somebody might have to primary him, and then after that, the states that didn't have primaries, the open states that could people could vote no matter what their party designation was, a lot of those went ahead, and there was a, a thing called uh, Operation Chaos that came out originally in 2008, I believe, from Rush Limbaugh, but they deployed it again in 2020 and had all the RNC voters, the, the GOP voters, vote for who they thought was the weakest Dem primary candidate because they were trying to, uh, you know, they didn't have anybody to vote for because there weren't going to be any of their own primaries. So then they prime, you know, they'd vote for a lot of them voted for Bernie Sanders. Um, I believe some of them chose Pete Buttigieg because they thought Andrew Gay person might not be able to win. That kind of that that thinking. But Operation Chaos was deployed in South Carolina, New Hampshire, Ohio, Colorado, that I know for sure, and probably other states as well. You know, and then there was um, let's see what else. Uh, getting Kanye West on the on the ballots across the country, even though he missed all the deadlines. Well, the people that helped him with that were guys from Raja, the the uh, Republicans. Republican journals. Yeah. 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 Helped him. He was uh, he was on the ballot in my state ahead of Joe Biden. Wow. <laughs> really interesting. You're not always missing the deadlines. Yeah, and, so, and it was like a whole thing. There was uh, James O'Keefe did a big thing about ballot harvesting over the summer of 2020. Um, the uh, CMP, oh, excuse me, the ALEC people, the, I can't remember, that's an uh, organization of, of people that work with state legislatures. They started trying to get to state legislators as early as uh, February or March of 2020 to kind of plant the seed that, you know, maybe they just might have to not accept the results. Um, there was a CMP meeting in February of 2020 where 
the same type of, of thought process was dis, was also spoken about by the people that were at the meeting there at that time. And then, like I said, after COVID, all bets were off because you had the frontline doctors in there and, you know, Jenny, Bett, Martha, Barton, Martin and Ginny Thomas and all of those people saying, hey, reopen the economy. We don't care if people are dying because they wanted him to win. You know, it, um, it's pretty crazy. There was a a movie that was released by, uh, I believe it was Daniel Bostic, the plot to kill the president in June of 2020. There was something by Jack Posobiec where he did an Antifa film in 2020 and a whole other host of things between the the, the political class, lawsuits to suppress, you know, voter suppression, kick people off the voter rolls, and the influencer type class. Um, Ali Alexander did Joe Biden is sick.com, where he was telling everybody Joe Biden had Parkinson's. Um, it was just a mess. He had a website that was the Harris Biden or Harris Biden admin, where he was implying that Kamala Harris was really who was going to be the president. And that once they won, the plan Harris and Pelosi were going to 25th Amendment Joe Biden and take over the country. That's weird. Yeah, as far as like <laughs> Ali Alexander with Parkinson's, interesting. I don't yeah. know if you've noticed Roger Stone's tremor. Right. Um, there's, there's a connection between cocaine use and degenerative neurological disorders. Right. Um, I mean, so, it's this crazy uh, full tilt boogie, it balls, balls to the wall, excuse me, but that's kind of what it was. It was like everybody everywhere kind of like talking about crowdsourcing the, the uh, Gen 6. All these people and all their organizations and wherever they had a platform started to try to do whatever they could misinformation why yeah but really I, if you, you can you can push it back further than that right i mean there's been efforts to undermine democracy ongoing for, for, for a long decades time. yeah for a very long time you are correct sir but it just seemed to really hit a crescendo towards the later half of 2019 into early 2020 because they all knew he was such an incredibly unpopular divisive person Right. And so evidently people that had some ideas about how things go knew that, that he wouldn't be able to win swing states. And so they just tried whatever they could to make it easier. So it's pretty crazy. And Stay with the Electoral College, you, you just have to uh, fudge the results in a couple of states and, right. you, you know, you can win. Right. That's probably what they were holding out for. Or if you don't, then it'll go House, and they had more GOP House members to, to vote for him. Yeah, basically so. similar to find, you know, what they did in 2000 uh, mm -hmm. down in Florida, where yes. you know yep. you get the right yep. judicial outcome, and you know. Right. I just I actually just found out that Roger Stone's son, I think it was his son, was a sheriff in that county. Wow. I didn't know that until recently. I mean, there were there were some pretty hinky things for sure going on in 2000, and it's just been extrapolated upon going forward. 
you know, over the years, the uh, thing in 2018 down there with the governor and the senator seat, they did the exact same thing. There was a group of people that worked for the uh, Kentucky governor's race and some of the Virginia elections in 2019 to try to influence it. Kind of like a practice run, you know, it's, uh, it's, I guess it's just easier to cheat the system than to change minds with good policy, perhaps. But they've decided they don't need that. That's yeah. 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 No, and it's filtered down. It's filtered down into even to the grassroots level. They Absolutely. think they win by money and and dirty tricks. That's the new model, and people even accept it. Right, money, brute force, for sure, and dirty tricks, exactly. But you know, they have some powerful allies. We have one person I had completely forgotten about is kind of uh, the Peter Thiel, Jeff. Uh, Gisia wing of the party. I mean, he took a. They took a lot of these influencers under their wings. 27, 2017, 2018, and new right. Once uh, the Nazi Richard Spencer was um, caught at the uh, the inauguration ball, the deplorable, and they kind of something that was a little neo Nazis, but. Gisia worked, he had several pieces that were in respected magazines about using mimetic warfare as a means to out, uh, to influence the population's thought process or elections um, between 2016 and 2020. And then he's also gone on to uh, kind of mentor and Pressler and Ali Alexander. Uh, Mike Cernovich, the whole crew. There's so. a whole libertarian to fascist pipeline. Uh, yes, you see Rhodes as well, yeah. right? And a lot of the Rand Paul and Ron Paul people, a lot of people yeah. on the Ron Paul campaign. Yeah, I would actually agree wholeheartedly on that. Um, yeah, kind of scooped them all. It's something these people are really good at doing. Uh, we talked about Ammon Bundy earlier and people's rights. There's 60,000 people registered with that organization now in probably 30 states in multiple countries. And to get it rolling up aggrieved people, whether it's because of their race or gender or there's a uh, people that don't believe in the sovereignty of the, the treaties that we signed with people think they're sovereign citizens so they don't have to pay taxes um, he's been really really very effective at rolling up all of that aggrievement into one organization so um, who knows I'm worried about 2024 to be honest I'm hoping that we'll get this resolved by then right well and there is you know there's I mean again politically the, the numbers are no longer on their side. Uh, there are fewer people from the baby boom generation. And yeah, we've got true. the school shooting generation coming up. Where the they're pissed. Kids, you know. Yeah, they're pissed, and they should be. Yeah. They've, been, they've had their whole childhood robbed from them by people that won't take weapons of war off the street. I'm a gun owner. I have... I have lots of, you know, lots of handguns. I'm good with that. My my daughter went to college on a rifle scholarship, so it's not like I'm anti-gun, but I think it's time to do something about AR-15s and that type of weapon. It's just, 
how many kids have to die every day over and over and over again before people are responsive. And yeah, those, the kids are angry and that and abortion has been a super same thing. We grew up knowing that that was something that was there, that women had autonomy over their bodily function, you know, their body, their own body. And now well, it's not that. immediately went after birth control. They immediately, yeah. they, they said, this is leave it up to the states. And they immediately a judge in Texas decided to federalize the abortion pill. Right. Uh, and the, and, and I mean, just... the other means of, of, of um, uh, birth control will follow. They'll go for the one that said that I mean, there was a period of time where women could not get legally get birth control of any kind unless her husband approved of it. That was something that I mean we talked about back in the eighties. People would say, "Once Roe goes, Griswold goes next." And, yeah, and here we are. <laughs> so it's um, I, I don't know if it's the a thought that maybe if we just make it so hard for women to be able to control their destiny that we can keep they can tip the balance that a more you know more white babies or babies are born into their you know they want to now they want to affect. Uh, education so that they can we don't want you to indoctrinate we don't want you to indoctrinate our kids but they're the ones that are kind of indoctrinating kids by taking away things like honest history um, I don't know it's kind of scary but yeah, I, I don't is. think they're I think they're done yet no, uh, did you not done. and then part of what uh, the traditional Republicans you know Republicans have dominated the Supreme Court since 1968 uh, right. with the Bob Fortas nomination they, LBJ tried to make him Chief Justice that some stuff about some money came out and he winds up resigning and since then Republicans have controlled uh, the Supreme Court there was a Just... Republican majority when Roe was decided they've not yeah. overturned it because they knew the national competitive effect would be huge. And now they're acting like it's no big deal. You just have to accept all these things. Right. It's gonna stuff you are... in your childbearing years. Go bear children. Right. Can't even talk about sex ed anymore to kids. Right. You know what's going on with that. But but maybe it's because the teenage birth rate is at a sixty year all time low. And they need some more breeders or something. It's kind it of sad. Out the very same people who condemned people uh, for for quote unwed, you know, right? Shamed them back in the Yeah. Now we want you to make us some kids. Yeah. It's. I. I. I worry. I just feel so bad for for women. And and it would be one thing if they'd say we're going to take you can't have an abortion and we're going to take away Plan B and we you can't have birth control and you can't do this or that if they then then said well when you have the child that you can't support because you haven't finished high school or you live in a state that pays seven dollars an hour as a minimum wage here let us help you right extend the child tax uh, or the tax credit they did through the pandemic where they get extra money per children or food stamps or whatever Medicaid, whatever it is they need to have raise a successful family that we've forced upon you, but they don't want to do that either. No, those are the kinds of needless policies that, uh, especially Catholics who are you know involved, they like to call it the culture of life. 
And yeah. I think that, you know, the smarter ones or whatever have realized that, you know, they've enacted none of this. It's pure hypocrisy. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And there, so it, it's just the, the problem is once you break the electoral link between what people want and voting for whom they want and actual policies, which is what they're trying to do, you'll wind right. up with they can enact policies that no one likes and they think it, it won't matter because they control the levers of power. Yeah. I have a feeling they're going to be in, honestly, I believe in the next next election or two that they're going to be in for a very rude awakening when Gen Z hits the polls full force. And a lot of this is, is also dependent upon activism. And that's one of the yes. things that they don't understand. They don't rely on grassroots activism. Knocking no, on they, doors, calling people on the phone, sending emails. It's to turf it. Right. They, and they, they, they call it ballot harvesting. And they'll be like, it's suspicious. All these people registered to vote in this one area. It's like, that meant a crew went in, volunteers. I've led, I've done this for decades. You know, and they register people, they got them to vote. That's legal and normal. They call it ballot harvesting. But yeah, so are you still there? I guess okay. it's easier to lose people, to uh, just strip outrage instead of actually going out and doing the work. So. It's a lot of work, and you have to get people who are willing to do it for free. And yeah, because you know. that they feel a, a a calling for whatever reason in their heart, and you're not going to do that. It's either making people angry, but if you want to motivate them to do it, otherwise, it has to be about policy, and policy is right. harder. It's messy. It's not so. Anyhow, but I do believe that the kids that have come up, especially during the active shooter drill era, are really just tired of it. And I think they're gonna I think they're gonna change the world. I really do. Thank well, goodness. They're also more ethnically diverse and uh, more LGBTQ. Right. Um, they're more they're they're not diverse. on their side in, in any direction, basically. No. No, they're on the wrong side of all of those kids every single way. You know, that especially inclusiveness so i mean it, it is what it is i don't know why people they keep trying to just think if we just stomp it down hard enough it'll go okay but that's generally not how things work at least after a time well the thing is it's indoctrination when it's just rational self-interest people aren't voting for you because you're attacking them Right, all the time. I don't know if you remember when Trump was first elected, but he made that speech at the RNC when he accepted the nomination, saying he was going to be the most inclusive member or president ever. And then they had that; they rolled out the gays for gays for Trump train and all that. But the truth is, it's never been that way. And the handful of people that were involved in it. The guy that runs Gays for Trump or ran Gays for Trump at that time is an ex. Um, uh, he used to do. He used to masturbate on video for money, and he was at the Capitol. Wow! So, yeah, so that's I guess. influencer, and that's how he made a living. And he's he's not he's been he's been very honest about it, which is good for him there there, but. Um, 
yeah, been kind of crazy. So he certainly yeah. was not the most inclusive ever. That's yeah. for sure. Well, no, I'm sure they, they accept all kinds of criminals. Uh, yeah. that's, that's, that's the through line. Money and criminality. Heaven help you if you're transgender kid who's trying not to kill themselves today but yeah Absolutely. money yeah. so i i have well, really enjoyed very much being here and i am so glad you asked me to come on so i thank you so much for for appearing uh we have to do this again sometime and i i do think that we are approaching a point where maybe there will be accountability for some of these sedition vips and organizers i am starting to think so yes yep all right so all right talk to you later thank you thank you so much jules have a great day bye, bye. bye.